Welcome to a grounded discussion on the tangibility of spiritual awakening. What is spiritual awakening? How can it be achieved and can it be maintained? These are the very, very open questions that we will be attempting to address on this podcast. I'm Barnaby Anderson. And I'm Ian Trimmer. And we're on a mission to bring enlightenment discussion into the mainstream for our own evolving understanding and hopefully for the benefit of others. There are many terms in use for expanded awareness, awakening, enlightenment, transcendence, Buddhahood, Samadhi, to name but a few. The concept is no longer confined to ancient spiritual texts or the mystical East. It is a living experiential reality that is coming under scrutiny in a range of disciplines, including psychology, neuroscience and coaching. Our belief is that everybody has experienced a glimpse of transcendence at one time or another. Some have run with it and launched into scripture, yoga or meditative practice. Some have ignored it and others have run away or repressed it. It can be scary and we can attest to that. We want to do our bit in bringing this discussion into the mainstream, making it both digestible and acceptable. Socially acceptable spiritual awakening. How about that for a grandiose vision? Merging with totality cannot, by definition, remain a niche aspiration. It belongs in the pub, in the classroom and the boardroom, even if all that is currently being done over Zoom. You don't need to be on a spiritual path to experience transcendence. You don't need to be a mystic. You don't need to perform miracles with bread and fish. Uh, We both kind of lean that way, however. In this pilot, we'll be giving a bit of personal background and context. I think that's a good place to start, Barnaby. Ah, start at the beginning. Start at the beginning. That would be the beginningless beginning. Or the pathless path. Absolutely. The beginning of the pathless path. So, I think it all started with a book. Absolutely, it did. I think if we go back to more peaceable times... (laughs) Not one to romanticise the past. I am one to romanticise the past. Find me someone who doesn't romanticise the past. But yeah, I think we go back to the turn of the century, which makes us sound old, Mm -hmm. 2001, (laughs) 2002, where we were both, you were aspiring to be a, how can I put this? I'll put it nicely. You were aspiring to be an actor. Yes, a lovey. Uh, and I was ascending the heights of doing shift work in the East End of London, spectacular stuff. I don't think either of us at that time were particularly flush, particularly well off, particularly rich, would you say? There's very little in the, um, the cash flow, yes. Absolutely. So I think my world flipped over a little bit when I got up one sunny April morn. It could have been any month, I can't remember. Drank my coffee, walked down the stairs uh, and found a tax rebate. <laughs> On the carpet for, I think it was about £1,100. It was a lot of money at the time. To be honest, the emotional response I had to that, you could have put five more noughts on it and it wouldn't (laughs) have made it. The the emotional response would have been the same. So uh, I wandered off to Waterstones and and bought some books. I brought several books, but the one that stayed with me and us was the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. Mm. I read it, loved it. I was kind of obsessed with it. And I think you did the same and took the lessons, I would say, in all honesty, a little bit more to heart than I did initially. I think a a little bit more seriously. I think I remember the book basically promising an end to suffering. And uh, who doesn't want that? 
Well, uh, we thought we had a grandiose vision. <laughs> Thanks, Buddha. Um, so, yeah, you brought that book home and introduced us to, to, to Buddhism and, you know, the meditative practices, the um, the Buddha's teachings, and also compassion. I think it's the first time I came across the idea of compassion, how important that was. And you're right, I kind of took it a bit more serious and you started to practice and also went along to the organization Rigpo, which is, had been founded by the author uh, Soga Rinpoche. And I went along there for a few sessions. And then I kind of didn't quite work out for me going along to those sessions, but it was very important right back there at the beginning. So you had the meditative practices. And then I kind of read a bit more about Dalai Lama. So the Dalai Lama was quite important at that point in time as well. That was more compassion-based exercises. And then what was happening for you around the same time? Well, I was leading a different lifestyle too. So I was mm. working a lot of shift uh, and I was out and about a lot when I wasn't on shift. So I wasn't attending meditation classes. I was, to be honest, I was drinking a fair bit at the mm. time. And uh, at that time, I was, I'll be blunt about it, it was really good fun. I was engaging with it on a more philosophical level and a less practical level. So you were going down the Cali road, you were sitting on a cushion, you were engaging, you were talking to people. Mm. I was reading the book, absorbing it, and I was doing meditation. I remember working long night shifts, rolling in with a bacon sandwich and then sitting down to do meditation for 10 minutes before sleeping during the daytime, which uh, I really, really enjoyed. But it was more about reading the book and connecting with the content. And in particular, that message around connecting compassion with wisdom, which was something new to me. Mm. Mm. I remember uh, getting quite, I guess, frustrated with the sort of cultural um, history that came with the, the, the Buddhism, I guess, we were reading at the time, which was um, Tibetan Buddhism. And I, I remember becoming quite frustrated with that. And that sort of led me to start looking at other um, types of spirituality, if you, if you like. So I remember reading Dan Millman's book, uh, Way of the, the Peaceful Warrior. That was very important for me at the time. I remember coming across Jack Cornfield as well. He was another important spiritual teacher that introduced me to a different perspective on on spiritual awakening and Buddhism. And I seem to recall another book you had a bit later on, which was The Buddha by Karen Armstrong. And that book kind of got right down to the core of the Buddha's message. So there wasn't there was no sort of cultural history that came with that, really got to the, the, to the heart of it. And that sort of brought you back to Buddhism, I guess, a little, quite strongly at that point in time, because I kind of moved away from it. So that was an, an important book that had quite a profound impact on me and, and, and sort of set me off towards more Zen Buddhism, I guess, at that point in time. Absolutely. I remember it well. I think we we diverged in those few years, and obviously we came back together later on, in that I'd started reading things like the Deepak Chopra books that were very, very... I mean, in hindsight, and I think even at the time, they're mm. very, very corporate. They're very, very, very shiny. But it kind of, it did lead me into a, a more expansive approach to spirituality and mysticism generally. There were more tie-ins to the Western world. There were more attempts, whether they kind of have the intellectual credibility or not is a different discussion, but there were more attempts to engage with it in terms of quantum physics and modern thought. And it pushed me into, I know it's a massive term and Hinduism isn't even, a, is, is, 
is not even a single thing. It's kind of it's a word that was invented by the by the British Empire, but it, it pushed me down that route a little bit, and I found that more colourful. I found it. I took a lot from engaging with writings on initially Vedanta that would become Tantra later on, but not then. But that expanded it out to me. It had a colour and an energy, a vibrancy and a heart to it that I wasn't getting. I found the Buddhist scriptures a little bit dry, mm. if I'm going to be honest. And I read Zen and I'd read this, the Dalai Lama, but I hadn't quite connected with it in the same way as you had. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I guess it might be quite helpful to think a bit more about what was going on for us at the time as well. Like you were saying, you were doing shift work um, and I was sort of an aspiring actor at the time, trying to pick up all sorts of odd jobs, doing removal work, working in a bar, work, doing all sorts of different things really to to, to um, pay our way really. So all that was going on in the background whilst we were trying to put some of these practices into practice, into everyday life. A lot of the time it was kind of sat on the cushion, wasn't it really? Well, I don't know about you, but it was for me. I was just sat on the cushion a lot of the time doing these meditative practices, but not really taking it into the rest of my life. It was kind of like the moments were happening and the peace was happening whilst I was sitting down, but I wasn't really, um, it wasn't when I got off the cushion, it wasn't really coming into the rest of my life. So there continued to be a lot of reactivity, a lot of difficulty, a lot of suffering, um, a lot of questions around purpose, a lot of questions around who am I, those types of things continued without the practice really penetrating the rest of my life. Yeah, I fully agree. I was, as you say, I was living a different life, even though we were on and off sharing accommodation at this point. Mm. Um, but it was it was a similar experience. My life had changed to the extent that I was no longer working shifts. I'd had some, I guess you'd call it career success. I was wearing a suit to work. I was working normal hours. And to me, it started to become, it was kind of like a corporate relaxation technique. So I would pat myself on the back. I was doing quite a lot of it. So I'd get home from work and I'd do an hour's Hatha yoga and then later on in the evening, I do half an hour sitting meditation, often just before bed. And But there wasn't a lot of discussion around it. There wasn't a lot of engagement. And it was very much, it was good. It wasn't wrong, but it wasn't deepening. It certainly was nothing to do with samadhi or awakening. It was very much a tip box exercise, if I'm going to be honest. Mm, I think it, it was a little bit like that for me too at points. Um, but... <laughs> I think what happened though is whilst we were reading different books and coming across different teachings, the next sort of game-changing book or teacher was, I think, Ajashanti. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. I think my memory of the process was you had met who would become your wife uh, a few years hence. I had changed jobs again and I started traveling an awful lot. And I look back on that now and I never made the connections at the time, but I think that disruption stimulated the spiritual journey Mm. it got it out of it basically not ground to a halt but it had become stagnant it had become i think the word i'm looking for is mechanical Mm. and i think i can say that for both of us and i think you'd met catherine you were planning on moving to scotland i was all over the place literally and figuratively if i'm going to be honest but i think that had a benefit on how we approach the spirituality, it was less linear. So I wasn't doing two practices a day at set times. I was jumping off planes back in London for weekends. We were you know, grabbing takeaways, drinking wine. You were up and down to Scotland. And my approach changed. It was 
engaging with a variety of writings. It was engaging a little bit more with nature and it was engaging with audio teachings because we were both traveling a lot. Mm. And it was definitely Ajashanti was the one who, to borrow an overused phrase, it's so overused that it, you know, it gets attacked on LinkedIn now. But it was a, it was a paradigm shifter. And I remember, and this is pre the days where you could hook your phone up to your car and listen to, listen to audio books. So I had that, that pouch of CDs where there was about 10 or 15 of them. And it was an Ajashanti teaching that I'd spontaneously purchased from Amazon and I was driving up and down a motorway somewhere listening to it and something just clicked into place. And I think you're best placed mm. to maybe elucidate what that something was. Yeah, I think I think that what you, you, you often find in a lot of the literature, particularly, um, I guess, more um, traditional Buddhist text in particular, is this idea that enlightenment and awakening is incredibly rare and you don't really talk about it. It's sort of thing that, 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 you know, if you believed in karma, the sort of thing that takes many, many lifetimes to, to fulfill, to reach, to awaken to. And Ajishanti was the first person to really say, well, hang on a second. It's absolutely possible in this lifetime. Um, and if you listen to some of his teachings now or some of his interviews, he'll say he's met hundreds of people who, you know, who awake, who've awakened. And that was that it was it's difficult to quantify how important that was hearing that um i think it helped that it came from a, a westerner and the way in which he taught very much and whilst it was zen buddhism it um almost packaged it in a way that was much more accessible for the western mind to understand and interpret that was the other sort of big takeaway from that that first listening to one of his audio books but yeah i think the idea that awakening was could be was present could be present now and in this lifetime was it was it was an absolute game changer and just opening up to that possibility um that you know that that could happen so yeah i would say that's probably the biggest takeaway having said that there is a med he does a meditative practice where it's really just you know, allowing everything to be as it is with with no manipulation. So you, you sit there and instead of just concentrating necessarily on the breath or one part of your body, you just allow everything to be as it is. You don't manipulate what he calls manipulating the, the present moment, i.e. by focusing on a particular area. And that was a that was quite different as well because, you know, in, in Tibetan Buddhism, often taught to focus on the breath, very sort of traditional, what you would call now mindfulness practices, although mindfulness is, is much more expansive than that um, if you actually do um, mindfulness practices. But that, that, was a, that was another significant difference, this, this non-manipulation, and that certainly led to a deepening of these um, nowness moments. Absolutely. And I, my experience of it was very similar conceptually. I don't, full disclosure, I didn't respond so well to that non-manipulative meditative approach. I think it's it's like a Zazen, isn't it? So that's your classic Zen approach of you don't manipulate your experience at all. You just experience and merge with your experience. I wasn't quite so taken with that, but the concept of enlightenment or awakening is something that is tangible and real in this lifetime, something that could basically happen to me. It was that experience of hearing it coming through the speakers on a car, driving home from work, 
and it was just it was that bolt of energy through the whole somatic system i felt it through my body i had i'm guessing it was a challenging day at work because days at work tend to be challenging by definition i was driving home and it was just my whole body just lit up and i think uh, when i got back i would have gotten out of the car and possibly made some kind of hammy 80s movie style gesture like punching the air <laughs> that sort of thing <laughs> it, it it changed me it was mm. it, it was the moment after that, it was a different game. Yeah. It was, how do we do this in this lifetime? And I think retrospectively, it highlights the point of how important the mind is. You, an awful lot of spiritual teachings can be interpreted as, and there's often this pervasive or implied mindset that, that the mind is wrong. The ego is something that needs battling. Mm. Uh, and you need to transcend it. Even in modern neuroscience, there's a lot of focus on the soma, which is phenomenally important but your mind needs to be aligned with everything else that's happening you need to have buddhism as i said i moved slightly away from it at the time but buddhism would call it the right view i think for me aligning with the right view was critically important and it was more than cognition that was something i felt somatically in my whole body and i i remember it i can remember the car covered in coffee stains I can remember the traffic jam on the motorway. It's just one of those things that sticks with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that 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 sort of um, confidence, almost that, that that was going to be possible, then led to obviously something we're going to talk about in a second, which is our own sort of spiritual awakening. But before we do that, I think we might want to give a bit of context that that very um, transformative and um, crucial experience that we had. So, as you had said, I, I met my future wife and I'd moved to uh, northeast Scotland at the time. And uh, we hadn't seen each other for quite some time. We thought, well, we better get away um, for a holiday, just you and I reconnect again i'd i've got i'd been got married the year before so very settled down i just finished uh, a master's in social work so going into the field of social work life was mapped out or being mapped out i should say and that was a in hindsight <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're going to come to those conversations never um, do that never do that uh so it seemed like that was mapped out um but yeah like i said we we planned to to to, to hook up again and reconnect um and go away together we've been to the states a couple of times and we decided that that was what we were going to do again go to the states this is 2012 we were going to go you said i think we'd planned it about a year before i can't your memory so much more better much better than mine we planned it quite some time ago and there was a lot of pressure to get it right, to have a good time and sort of almost relive those past two holidays we had and just, you know, and what things were like when we were living together. So a lot of pressure to to, to um, just have fun, really, and just enjoy ourselves, I think. It, always, it makes me laugh in hindsight that you would put pressure upon yourself to relax. And it kind of... I think about it now and it, it reminds me of children getting hyped up or me as a child yes. getting overhyped about Christmas, being unable to sleep and then basically behaving like a precocious brat all Christmas Day and not enjoying it for, for one minute. There are still moments of that now, Barnes. I am. I was going to go with outrage, but I'm going to go with acceptance. <laughs> yes. How's that for a meta position? <laughs> You're quite right. There was a level of excitement. Absolutely. There was a level of excitement about the whole trip. Um, and I think 
that's really important for this the, the context that, that actually eventually occurred because there was so much pressure um, and so much excitement and so much anticipation and expectation. That's the other thing. There's so much expectation, which we've kind of we've kind of come to see that expectation is one of the roadblocks, almost I would say, suggest to um, awakening. But there was so much pressure, and I think, um, however, maybe it might be quite nice to maybe give that quick image of me turning up at the airport because I can't quite remember. I remember it vividly. So, as you say, we were overhyped in a way that two people who are technically adults probably shouldn't be. <laughs> We'd been planning it, looking forward to it for eight or nine months. Uh, and I think maybe the first problem was we structured it the same way as we'd structured some of our previous trips. So we didn't put a lot of imagination into into building any novelty around it. But you were in, as you say, in Scotland. I was, I could I think where I was. I think I was in the, the Cotswolds at the time. Yeah, I was living in a cottage in the Cotswolds at that point. And I'd come to Heathrow to meet you. And there was, you'd flown down on a connecting flight from Aberdeen to meet me in Terminal 3. Captain Pedantry when it comes to memory. Mm. And I was stood at one side of the terminal in the departure lounge with a cup of coffee and I saw you walk in and I saw you from about 50 yards away. I saw the look on your face and it was stress. It was tension. It just, and I remember the first time we went, which would have been five years previous to that, just how excited you'd been. And it was just the contrast was straight away I was worried. Yeah. So, we eventually got there. We got to the East Coast out of the States and it was, you know, rubbish weather and I was really wanting it to be lovely and sunny because I live in the northeast of Scotland now. I mean, most people can probably relate to that when you've been planning and waiting for this holiday to come and you suddenly get there. It's just not what you wanted it to be, either because of the weather or the way you're staying or something like that. It was that sort of experience at the time. So the weather wasn't very good. I needed some sun. I needed to relax and just, just the from the get-go was just was not great so we, we we just were staying where we were staying for for a few days we were just grouchy with each other i was certainly grouchy with you just things weren't living up to, to what we expected it to be and you know just as a sort of full disclosure you know our relationship our friendship is very very close you know we've um, spent a lot of time together um, and obviously we're doing this podcast together because, you know, we have this shared experience. So in terms of our attachment to each other as well, there was a very strong attachment um, that was happening. Um, and that was starting to be put under pressure, I think, at that time. I think it's fair to say. And on in hindsight, there was an avoidance of voicing what that might be, that, that potential difficulty in our friendship at that point in time. So that was all going on underneath. But we, we weren't, we weren't, you know, talking about it. We weren't being explicit about any of these things at all, which is more coming out in, oh, oh. <laughs> it's just like, this is, this is not a good holiday. And so I need some better weather and things like that. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that exceeded my expectations were the size of the whiskey measures on Cape Cod. <laughs> I was stunned. You asked for a large in the UK and you don't get half a pint. So hats off to those bar owners down on the Cape. But that aside, you're absolutely right. We were, Having shared flats and been close friends for a long time, you'd moved to Scotland. I was living hundreds of miles away and we'd had this holiday and it felt like our friendship was basically unfolding. Yeah, exactly. It was unfolding. It was, uh, and when you say unfolding, I think 
what I take from that is yeah, um, falling apart almost actually felt it started to feel like it was falling apart. Yeah. Yeah. It didn't feel like we were going to fall out. But from that point, from the point that we were in Cape Cod and we were looking ahead towards a few days in New York, and I had the feeling, I think we both had the hunch that we'd get through this and then not we're done, but maybe we're just going to reset things a little bit. We're not going to be, it's just not going to be the same. It mm-hmm. was kind of felt like the that period of being really good friends, being important figures in each other's lives had effectively, was effectively winding down. Mm-hmm. So we get to New York and uh, things get a little bit better because the weather's better. The weather's better. Mainly. They, and, and let's be, let's and be fair to New York. New York's a pretty good place to be. Sorry, sorry, mate. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> New York's just a lot of fun. You know, I, I've, I've, I've been there every time of the year. I've been there many, many times as you have now as well. And it's... Whatever the context, you know, I've had icicles on my nose in January, stood outside a hotel in New York, and it, to an extent, never lets you down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it never lets you down, even in winter. So, um, and just for people listening, you know, the reason we're going into this sort of detail, because it's very important for, for what happened next, and hopefully some of what we're talking about connects with maybe some of your experiences, frustrations, annoyances, expectations, um, just in, in life generally. So that all happened. You know, we're on holiday. We get to New York. Still a bit grouchy with each other. And then um, on our last day in the morning, um, maybe your best to take this forward, actually, this, this part of the story. Okay. Um, thank you. We had, we'd had a decent time in New York, so we'd recovered a little bit, but not enough, I would say. Um, and we'd been out for a couple of nights we'd met with a few people over the last couple of days and then the last day we woke up in the hotel room and although we'd had decent time it would have been from any objective perspective looking back over the holidays effectively a failure Mm. however on the last day the day we're due to catch the flight back to the uk i just woke up and i had about five hours sleep so we'd got in from a friend's party at about two o'clock in the morning and I'd woken up at about seven, maybe eight o'clock. And I just, you know, those days where you just feel fantastic for no good reason. I was expecting to wake up thinking, this is the last day we've got to fly home today. It's over. There's no point left. There's no space left to redeem this experience. Mm. However, I just had a stupid grin on my face from the moment I woke up. Remember it so clearly. And you would have woken up a little bit later on. And we went for breakfast. We went to, not for the first time that week, we went for the classic diner experience. So you have those ninja waitresses serving you coffee without you even realising that it's happening. Big stack of blueberry muffins and pancakes and bits of bacon in my pre-plant-based days. And I was in a thoroughly good mood. You weren't quite there yet. I was quite grouchy, let's be fair. You were quite grouchy, absolutely. But my memory of the reason that I'm pointing that out is not to highlight your grouchiness, Mm. which is kind of quite lovable when you get to know it. But I wasn't reacting to it. Normally it annoys me. Mm. Normally I'm prickly and defensive about it, but I wasn't. I was just, I was eating my muffins, drinking my coffee. I think I may have been reading a Kindle on my lap under the table, but I just had a big grin on my face. And I tried to put a, a gloss on the holiday, which was, I guess, the nicest word I can use to describe it would be disingenuous. Mm. So I started with a whole, I've had a nice time. And you basically shut me down. 
you said, no, I haven't had a nice time. It's been this and this and this. And that honesty was kind of like, again, I just had a big smile on my face. Then we walked off. We walked up Broadway over Columbus into Central Park. And you just turned around to me and said, what's all this been about? And I just said, you don't need me anymore. That's what it's all about. And from that moment, it was, it was, it was, it was boom. There was an evaporation of the, of, I guess, the I narrative totally in a sunny central park in what would have been June, as I remember it. Yeah. I I recall the, the sort of, the the build up to that the sort of frustration with the the holiday but it wasn't really about the holiday it was this 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 coming awareness or building awareness and acceptance of the fact that you know um, we had different lives and that's what thing and, and our lives were looking quite different and we were separate from each other and our lives were going separate ways really I think and it felt like at that time and that sort of attachment to you and but also the avoidance of what the realization and the avoidance of the pain that that came with that and when you said that it was literally boom i awoke in that moment um and what the first thing i remember is this awakening happening inside of me and then looking at you and then looking at a tree and the trees awakening speaking to my awakening and then I looked at this woman and her awakening spoke to my awakening and it was as if I and the tree and you and this woman and everything around me was awake everything around me was one and there was no attachment to anything. There was no avoidance of anything at that point in time. And this massive grin on my face and the humor uh, that, 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 that I was attached to this, who I was. And all this was going on all in like a split second almost. It was, that, that, it was all happening at one, at one time. Um, and it was literally that I was there, there was, there was this me, but there wasn't this me and there was this awakeness everywhere and it was communicating all the time. And there's this line, which I won't get quite right, but which the Buddha said, which was, I awoke and the world awoke at the same time. It's, it's not quite the right, um, uh, line but in that moment that made sense to me previous that hadn't made sense it was how could i awake and then the world awakes at the same time that makes no sense whatsoever at all but in that moment that that truth of it was understood not in a conceptual way but just in that very experiential way um and, and again it's it's the only a lot of these truths and a lot of these paradoxes can only be experienced. You can't really understand them with the mind. So that was my overriding memory of that. There are many other things happening too, but that awakeness woke up to the awakeness in others and it was all communicating and it was all speaking to each other and was as one. What about you? What about for you? Well, I mean, that's a very poetic 
exposition of the experience. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, Very similar. Mm. I was tempted to just chip in and say ditto. (laughs) (laughs) To be, yeah, to take things to the proper kind of level. I was thinking of of Ghost then. I wonder if my younger listeners won't actually get that reference, but I think Ghost has made a bit of a... um, a comeback on Netflix recently. Oh, sorry for that. Go for it. G- Ghost, you mean the the Patrick Swayze <laughs> pottery thing? Yes. Demi Moore. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but for me, it was some aspects to take from it. It was exactly that. It, it was the humour as much as anything, the love and the humour. Mm. So one thing that I remember very specifically is looking at a rock, and this is – you talk about everything being awake and the world awakening with you as you awaken. It was exactly my experience. And I looked at a rock and it was just laughing out loud, not at the rock, but at the human egoic concept that assigns more value to a diamond than to a rock. I just found the whole thing without any contempt, without any kind of spiritual superiority, the absurdity of it. I just, I, even thinking about it now, just it just makes me laugh. Mm. The idea, so I guess diamonds are valuable because they're so rare and that I wasn't cognizing it in quite this way at the time. I was just laughing. But you look back on that and you see through that human ego attaching value to rareness and the whole thing was just so so darn silly, if I'm going to be honest. And I know when I'm in a very spiritual place and it's real because I laugh, I still do it all the time now. I did it this morning. When uh, I got up and did my 20 minutes on the floor before putting the coffee on. And I just, after about 10 minutes, started shaking and giggling. Mm. And I, I do that a lot. It's fantastic. And it's the just experiencing all contents of your awareness as your awareness. So you realize that the line between what you would describe as the self and what your senses are absorbing. So the trees in the background, the people who I was kind of viewing like a a unified consciousness. They were like something out of an impressionist painting. It always makes me think of those Gauguin ones in Tahiti. Mm. Reminds me of that. But everything around me, everything that I was hearing, touching, sensing, none of it was separate to self. And there was an experience of bliss, but bliss was the byproduct, not the cause. So I've experienced plenty of bliss since then without having that shift of perspective. So it is a shift of perspective into totality as a lived experience not as a concept the conceptual knowledge is important i think your mind will shut it down without the conceptual knowledge but the conceptual knowledge is the map and this was the actual territory the actual experience yeah i think it's a so the 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 conceptual knowledge is, is important in terms of contextualizing almost what's going on too i mean if i think about what actually occurred I didn't have a context to what had occurred, i.e. I hadn't read or heard about spiritual experiences. Um, I think I might have thought there was something really quite fundamentally... I'm not too sure what my reaction would have been at that point in time. I'm unsure. I'm unsure now I'm thinking about it. Maybe because it was such a pure moment, maybe it's such a fill with happiness and joy and love and compassion that... Um, I think I would have been okay regardless of the the context. 
But I also wonder, I guess what I'm questioning here is if you have some of these experiences, and I've had some since, a number of different experiences since we'll talk about on another podcast and prior to that, I wonder without the context, you might think that you're feeling a bit um, uh, an odd one out, different from society. Maybe you feel like you're going a little bit crazy, to be honest with you. That's the sort of power of these moments, I think. But no, I think that actual experience now and thinking about it, and you know, my memory is not as sharp as yours when we when we recollect and think about these things. But that actual experience, I think it would have been um, taken in the way in which it came across at that point in time without the context. I think without the right view, without the philosophical knowledge, without the cognitive understanding, I think the mind shuts it down. And I had, looking back on it now, and it took me a long time to actually remember it. It wasn't until long after this, but I had a couple of these experiences when I was quite young, uh, early teens. And I think I was carrying some Western baggage around a wrathful deity. Hmm. And it was just scary. I remember I remember when it happened. I remember where it happened. And I think your mind just represses it. It shuts it down, represses it, and rejects it. It's not, it has that beautiful grace and it has that deep awareness and that flowing love, but it's not gentle. It's not soft. And I think an ego, unless it's properly prepared, is just going to go haywire. And I think I can relate to when I read things about people having kundalini awakenings and having problems with psychological problems, I can relate to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you said, so in terms of shutting it down, though, to, you know, if you haven't got the context to it and you haven't got the, the being prepared in some to some degree for it, it's kind of stuck around for about two weeks for me on and off. It wasn't present the whole time. It kind of oscillated quite a bit, but it was around um, for about two weeks and back into normal life, if you like. So, you know, I was back at work. Um, I was back, uh, you know, obviously communicating around my wife. And, you know, I think people could sense there was something odd going on. There's no doubt about it. So there was something odd going on and more than normal. Um, and, but however, however, that, so that was all happening. One night I was lying there though, and this huge, huge fear suddenly overwhelmed me. It was like, it was, it was, it was incredibly powerful, this fear. And the fear was I can no longer communicate with my wife. It was the the moment that happened in Central Park was so powerful um, that it almost kind of stopped me being on this sort of physical plane, if you like, in some ways. It stopped me from engaging in sort of general chit chat, general conversation, um, being present at work in a way I kind of needed to be present. And the fear ultimately of not being able to speak to my wife, who just got married literally the year before, um, whoosh, straight down. That was it. The awakening experience went bang, straight like, you know, straight away. And it I couldn't get it back even when I wanted to get it back. And it, it stayed away for a number of years after that. So that deep, deep fear, which is something I think we will absolutely be thinking and, and thinking about and discussing on the podcast, the fear kicked in and gone, evaporated completely um, to the point where a few years afterwards, um, I thought had this even happened was this a dream that you know was i mad was i crazy to think that is what actually happened 
Unfortunately, because of our friendship, we've been able to talk about it since and know that it wasn't, um, I wasn't being, it wasn't, I wasn't being mad. I wasn't crazy. I wasn't, you know, out of my mind in that sense. So what about for you after the uh, New York experience? I think you touched on a key point around the experience happening to both of us at the same time and in the same place. It keeps it alive in the memory. So we're people who've both or had at that point and even more so now obviously engaged in a lot of spiritual practice but the fact that we could reference it with each other and say things like you know was that a dream did that really happen but the experience didn't fade because we we spoke about it to each other and we kept it relatable but for me personally it was I was quite trusting of it I didn't have the dramatic fear like with you it stayed there for nine ten eleven days I can't recall exactly because it didn't fade out dramatically. I didn't have that grand fear experience. I just had a a slow petering out. My most vivid memories of it and what to me now is even more pertinent than that blissful experience in Central Park is the fact that it survived the rubber hitting the road. So it wasn't the enlightenment on holiday back at work on Monday thing. Hmm. It was we'd done... We'd taken the red back to the UK, hadn't we? Gone through the time zones, had Mm -hmm. the jet lag, gone back home in the rain, gone back to work after a couple of days. And I remember being two or three days later, being back to London again in meetings and it's still being there. And I remember having these demanding complex corporate meetings. And although I wasn't in the same state of bliss as I was in Central Park, it was the complete absence of resistance to experience. And still that experience that everything was an aspect of my consciousness. So the level of actual bliss fluctuated, but that baseline of oneness was there throughout the entirety of that period. And again, I had similar experiences to what I had with you in the in the diner where, and I'm not going to call out the details here, but situations around dinner tables and in pubs where arguments or views that I would have reacted to normally just went completely over not over my head as in I didn't understand them but I just didn't it didn't hit myself didn't react to it Mm. it it was quite smooth for me I just moved into a cottage as I'd said and although it the oneness did shut down there was just a taste of it that was there really for a year or so afterwards and I think it did help that my life was quite nice I was in a good position at work. I had a good balance of travel and working from home, going into offices. I was living in a very nice situation in a beautiful part of the world. Lots of friends, family close by. I was leading a kind of wholesome, healthy lifestyle. I was running. I was eating. My, I think I'd my five a day got exponential at some point. It's like my 25 a day. And it's just that whole, for a year or so, it was just there was maybe 10 days, 11 days of the oneness. And then there was a year of just there being an afterglow of it. Mm. Mm. And I think since then, um, it kind of things started to um, take off again, if you like, in terms of uh, the sort of touching, touching the awakening over the last few years. And that, that, that started off uh yeah, I don't know, three or four, maybe five years ago, didn't it? That kind of kicked off again. Um, and 
since then, we've kind of been broadening our horizons in terms of teachings and, and, and understanding the process, um, refining the process to a degree, and doing a lot of practices around things such as um, real self-inquiry, asking some deep, deep questions and doing lots of body work, somatic work. Think of the, the um, teachers such as Reggie Ray. Um, and, you know, again, this will be other things we'll be coming back to in future podcasts. But it certainly started again. It's just, again, why we're having this conversation. Um, and I guess what I want to get across after just speaking about what I was speaking about is that the fear and the the incapacity I felt about not being able to communicate with those around me um, seems to have been unfounded, seems to have been unfounded. So what's happening, been happening particularly more recently is the awakening has been coming back in drips and drabs, if you like, and um, actually being able to function in everyday life, in the world, in relationships has not been... Um, it's not been particularly problematic, if I be honest. And that's been something that's been very welcome, very welcome. So the fear I had turned out not to be true. Um, so I just wanted to make that point quite clear. I don't want people to think that this awakening means that you're going to suddenly not able to have relationships or, or function in everyday life. That was more my identity and my ego taking over at that point in time and having a real conflict with what was happening. And that's not to say that awakening and the experience we had and what's happened since hasn't had and is having a profound impact on the way in which um, we enter life and are in life and be in life. But it's also, um, it can coexist with life. It can coexist with everyday um, experiences um, and that's, again, I guess another point of what we're trying to say with this podcast is that, you know, many people out there will be having these experiences and can continue to have them and deepen them within everyday life. Absolutely. I think something that we've touched upon talking uh, amongst ourselves here is the there was a spontaneity to that Central Park experience. Mm. It's kind of like a gift from grace without you deliberately generating it through practice or will. Um, it's called, I believe it's called uh, Shakti Pata in some of the scriptures. And then there is a period where you have to re-engage, you have to find practices that work, you have to do effectively the work. Mm. So that can be cognitive therapeutic work, spiritual practices, resolution of health issues, uh, nutrition, all these things. So, And that was exactly my experience. So as you said, it took three or four years of Trial and error is the wrong way of perceiving it because it wasn't error. I kind of think about the pertinence or the effectiveness of spiritual practice as almost like fencing. And you're fencing with yourself to an extent. It's kind of like you're trying lots of different things and you're trying to find where the gap is. And I think it's almost like getting under the conscious mind. You find the things that you connect with. And sort of, I say sort of, but it's quite specific when it happened for me. 2016, I hit a meditative practice that I knew was taking me back into that place. Mm. And since then, I've looked back over the interim period between Central Park and finding that practice in 2016. Uh, and I've got more of an understanding about where the pitfalls are and what needs to be done in terms of things like 
balancing awareness practices with energy practices, which was a key insight for me. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an example of where we can deliver some value in this podcast in that there's always a, well, not always, but there's there's often an imbalance there. People will heavily focus on an awareness practice. And I hear people talking about meditation being used in all sorts of different contexts and being contraindicated for causing issues. And the thought is always in my head, it's because you're doing an awareness practice without addressing the energy properly. And Mm. those things were hugely important. So for me, I'm at a stage now of currently living in a different part of Scotland to you, where there's been an awful lot of hiking and nature mountains, which has been hugely important. A lot of spiritual practice, a lot of growth. And I'm regularly experiencing those samordis, as I as you are too. Mm. And on occasion, that's been spontaneously simultaneous as well. So where I'm not is that being a continuity of experience, although I'm feeling it beginning to seep into day-to-day experience. Mm. It's growing all the time. So I'm not even sure if there ever is a destination. I don't know if ultimately you just fold into the process, but we're still on the process. But we have taken, I'm not supposed to do spiritual boasting, am I? <laughs> just for this one. Just, 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 the, yeah, give me a, give me a, give me a pass, but just this one time. But I, I just want to widen this debate. I want to talk to people who are having similar experiences. I want to have people maybe, there's a wonderful set of teachings in a book around them called the Recognition Sutras, which is in Kashmir Shaivism. And it's, that's such a beautiful phrase. And I want people to experience recognition. And that's not necessarily a full recognition of themselves as as divine or truth or Buddhahood, but recognize that maybe they had a glimpse of that experience and would like to discuss it. Mm. I'm also, and I'll be open about this, I was made redundant as part of the pandemic cost-cutting from the corporate life in the summer. And I am setting up a coaching business and I I am looking to to coach people, but that's only a small part of what this is about. Yeah, I think so I think what you're touching on there is that the, the everyone has a unique process to go through. Everyone has a unique um an individual response to these a number of these different practices. What you practice and the things that you have done, not all of them have worked for me. Equally what I have done and the practices I've done have not worked for you, but there are some commonalities. And we've had discussions about what those commonalities might be and and, and are. So, you know, we're very keen to think about, you know, talk about what we've experienced, but and many other practices too. And we also want to consider, as you alluded to, Barnes, is, is this idea that actually, you know, we have to go back and almost rewalk the steps that took us to the awakening. So what I mean by that is, you know, um, one teacher talks about a direct path. You go straight to the heart of it and then you almost um, prune away afterwards. So, for example, um, in terms of psychology, uh, it might be that there might be, need to be some sort of therapeutic input for some people to um, work out um, and detangle some of the psychological issues that that, that people have, have have got caught up in during throughout their their life. Um, so that that would be one thing to think about, and that's something certainly we're going to bring to the to the table and talk about is psychological psychological models and theories. Been very important for us in terms of helping us to understand. 
also a lot of these these spiritual teachings come from the east a lot of them uh, the ones that we've been talking about anyway today um and they're not always well set up for the western mindset so how we think so we're probably also going to tap into um some spiritual traditions traditions that more come from the west um, and all of this really is to start to unlock and speak about and to understand this unfolding process um so we're not psychologists but we're kind of amateur psychologists in a way i think it's fair to say um you've done lots of reading and experimentation on yourself using a number of different you know psychological models um i've been working in social work for a number of years very much in a therapeutic role so that i bring in work to bear on that too um but what we're trying to do is think not just about spiritual practices whilst this is a obviously a fundamentally a spiritual podcast we want to bring whatever we can to bear so we can start to understand and support people to go through this process and we're really looking for people to um, speak to us about what's worked for them as well and you know to aid us on our spiritual journey for want of a better phrase absolutely i think to bring some specifics around it all of that is very very true and we are we're armchair psychologists, but it's not armchair watching the TV psychologists. It's armchair with a Kindle in one hand and a hardback book in the other, espousing theories and, and trying things out, which is great. But what what really got me to this point of wanting to do this and wanting to connect with people and just, I just want to talk about it. Mm. But it was after being made redundant, I was, I am a coach and I was being coached along what I actually want to do. So what my niche, what my niche would be in coaching. And I was thinking about, I just want to talk about transcendence. Mm. And it was getting involved. I had a dim and distant memory from my corporate past of working with the hierarchical humanist psychology models of Abraham Maslow, which I think a lot of our listeners, a lot of people will be aware of, which has self-actualization at the top. And I had a vague memory that, Maslow would refine that model later in his life and put self-transcendence at above self-actualization on that pyramidical model. So I dived back into that. I found some very, very interesting modern books. There's a very good one that's just been launched called Transcend that I'm sure we'll be discussing on this course. But it was it was music to my ears. It was joy to my eyes because Although it's far from definitive, what that did was start putting psychological definitions around transcendent experiences. And it took it not away, but it stopped ring-fencing transcendence as something mystical. And I think although I'm perfectly comfortable with the mystical dimension, I think it's important that it has that language built around it. It has that attempt to define the characteristics of an individual who is self-transcendent. And that, for me, gave it a kind of credibility, not that it needed any credibility for me, subjectivity, um, subjectivity subjectively, but it enabled me to think this gives me something to work with now. So if I can grasp this information, we can take this forward. We can start talking about it. It just it gives the model a different dimension. And for me, that was, that was hugely, hugely important. So I'm happy to say inspired by Maslow at this stage. Okay, so what's the next steps? The next steps are we 
need to identify, identify, identify is a clinical word, isn't it? Mm. The next steps are to engage with discussions. So we've been, I guess, if you were being nice to us, maybe a little bit self-indulgent in our autobiographical approach to detail on this pilot, but I want it to be less about us going forward. What I would like, and I think I say the I, it's amazing how that perpendicular proland stays stays paradoxically stays in there when we're talking about transcendence if everyone understood what you just said (laughs) (laughs) sorry (laughs) i want to talk about things and not just self-indulgent rambling but talk about books talk about peer-reviewed studies personal experiences where they're relevant i'd like to have people on and Again, interviews are clinical word, but I guess they are, they would be interviews, wouldn't they? Mm-hmm. Have them discuss their experiences. People from different disciplines. I mean, happy to have someone come on and discuss the finer points of Qigong and Taoism. That's wonderful. Happy to have somebody come on and talk about humanist or classical psychology. That's wonderful too. Happy to have somebody come on and talk about quantum physics. Uh, you know, all those things. Anything that's anything that's relevant. Anything that expands and democratizes the debate it's about getting this into the mainstream mm. it, it, it's it's about personal experience as well i think yeah what we're hoping as well is that what we can try and do here is present a, a well it, it's be as vulnerable as we possibly can and as authentic as we possibly can so that others can really connect with um, our stories, and we want to we want to be able to connect with other people's stories. So that if we have people on, we want to hear what their own personal experiences are. So it's not some um, esoteric or theoretical idea. You know, it's actually something that we can all connect with, and and all these different experiences that people have experienced, we want to hear about too. Um, that would be our hope moving forward. So yeah, interviews would be good, but engagement conversations with people, very much so. And um, and we'll continue to do you know conversations like this amongst our, you and I as well. Um, but very much bring it out into the mainstream. And we've set up a Facebook page so that people can join, and that's Practical Transcendence. Um, please invite yourself along and join the conversation. Um, we are going to set up a website. Um, you can contact us if you want to email us directly at admin at practicaltranscendence.com. Um, the website isn't up and running yet, but you, you'll be able to get through to that email. And there's going to be a Twitter feed at some point also. But these details we will put on the descriptor that will be in the, sort of in the podcast description. Fantastic. I think if I'm going to make one more point mm. on this pilot episode, it's... I think you're so right about vulnerability. And I think for me personally, not showing vulnerability has been something that I need to come to terms with and start doing more. But I think the vulnerability around how this information is or how these experiences are received by other people. So you've talked about your marriage, which has been a wonderful opportunity for you to display vulnerability. And for me, I would in the past have just kept this a very close discussion and it would have been all about almost taking a litmus test of people so examining their credentials before even beginning to have a discussion about this so this is getting it right out there with a podcast and what i found is is as i've started to engage with people or talk to people who maybe i wouldn't have done 
even six months ago, certainly five or 10 years ago, I've got a very positive response. So I haven't had a denial or I haven't had a, oh, that's just a load of woo-woo nonsense. But the one thing that has come up, and this is a point that I would like to be very, very clear on, is that people have loved that story that we've just told, the autobiographical detail, the narrative. But people have said, that's 20 years, give or take. It's, mm. This sounds wonderful, but that's too much time. And I think where there's value to be added from this conversation is I went down a lot of dead ends and I know that you did too. Mm. It doesn't need to take 20 years. It took 20 years because we didn't have the right guidance. Yeah. And I think that's the key point. And that... I would be, to be honest, I would, that for me is a life's work. That's a life's work is getting that, Adyashanti did that for us. He made it achievable. He made it something that happens within a lifetime. For you and I, it's, we can help bring people to that point within a sensible time frame, removing the fear from it. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's what all this is about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much. I mean, I could talk we could talk much more about that couldn't we but i think we'll maybe pick that up on another podcast but absolutely can we can we you know broaden this discussion out so that people can connect as well with each other have a a, a community a sangha that people can learn from it and, and 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 derive strength from you know as the buddha said you know that's one of the three jewels is having you know a community having a sangha around you absolutely it was the buddha the dharma and the virtual sangha <laughs> the virtual sangha in the age of Zoom and pandemics. <laughs> so if, if you like the sound of it, please um, tune in to our next podcast. Please comment on Facebook. Please start a conversation on Facebook. We might be putting some um, comments on there or questions on there for people to think about and consider. Um, probably the same on Twitter as well. These things are quite new to us, this this sort of this social media tight way of communicating so we're gonna you know it'll take a while for us to get up to speed with that but we've got some we've been speaking to people recently who are willing very much willing to help us with that which we're quite excited about as well so thank you to those people but i think for now i'd just like to reiterate my thanks to those people uh the support that we've had thus far has been fantastic so i guess all that remains to say at this stage is it's namaste from me and namaste from him <laughs>